Today, our scripture reading is continuing the series of studies in Matthew's gospel, and we turn to Matthew chapter 5 at verse 1, and you'll find it on page 1501 of the church Bible. For those watching on our live stream broadcast, or perhaps on our Sunday morning Fox Carolina broadcast, when we open up the scriptures here in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, it's probably a good idea for you to have a Bible open on your lap at home as well. And when we pause and pray, Simply feel free to do so at home as well, because as we spend time in the Scriptures on a Sunday morning, we come with one prayer in mind. Father, open my eyes and let me see all that you would teach me today. And so that's exactly our prayer as we come to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And Matthew records the words of Jesus from what is arguably the best-known passage in all of Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins with these words. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His holy word. Back in early December, we began this series of studies in Matthew's gospel, and I said back then and again last week, and I probably won't say it much beyond today, but it's helpful to look at our study of the gospel of Matthew a little like opening up and beginning to put together a jigsaw puzzle for the first time. Because when you open it up, you have a quick look at the picture in the front, and then you separate out the various bits and pieces. You are, of course, looking for ones with a straight edge, others with two straight edges. There's only four of them, of course, and then all the rest. And over the last few weeks, we've put the four corners in place. We have built the framework, and slowly but surely, as we've worked our way through the early chapters of Matthew, a picture is beginning to emerge of Matthew's gospel. And When we first started Matthew's gospel, we asked ourselves, why on earth would Matthew begin the way he begins? Because in chapter 1, some of those opening words are, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And we asked the question that first Sunday together, why would anyone begin a bestseller with a list of people's names, because most of us simply jump over those names. We jump over them and get to halfway through chapter 1 when it says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. So, why does Matthew begin with this seemingly endless list of names? And that first piece of the jigsaw puzzle tells us this, because the gospel was written 
to people. It's not a book that's packed with abstract concepts, but it's written to people. It's written to transform and renew the heart and mind and soul. And what Matthew is telling us is generation after generation after generation, God was at work in the lives of these people. And then he goes right into the first century. And we in turn look at the gospel and ask, how does this apply to us today in a 21st century setting? In other words, when we come to the gospel, when I mentioned it seconds ago, we are asking ourselves, Father, what is in this passage for me on this Sunday, this 21st of January, 2024? Father, speak to me, encourage me, perhaps challenge me, strengthen me, equip me. What does your word have to say to me this morning? And that's exactly where we're going. Last week, we looked at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, and today we come to 5, that very familiar passage. But here is one of the difficulties for us. It is so familiar that we're tempted to think there's nothing new here. I've heard it before. I memorized it as a child. We studied it in Sunday school or small group a couple of weeks ago. Richard, there's nothing that I'm going to hear this morning I haven't heard before. And if that's where you are, let me ask you please to take those thoughts, put them to one side, and begin to immerse yourself in the passage, prayerfully saying, Father, help this passage to refresh and renew me. Take your word, speak into my life. And that's exactly where we're going with this very familiar passage. Now, last Wednesday, if I can go off at a little tangent, I asked our midweek Wednesday Bible study group, both at lunchtime and again in the evening, could I try a joke on them? And they said, if you really must, because I wanted to try it this morning. And I don't often tell jokes. I mean, you never hear me really telling jokes. I usually make some silly remark or humorous observation. But I wanted to tell you a joke. And I wanted to tell you it because I need your participation. And incidentally, the Wednesday night group groaned when they heard it. And I thought, thank you. <laughs> I thought, that's one of mine. That will work. And what I need you to do, inquire, I need your help here, join the congregation because I will give you the first line, you're to feed back the second line, I will do the third line, and so on. Are you ready? Okay. <sighs> right, here we go. It begins with knock, knock. Owls. Yes, they do. <laughs> now, some of you are not there yet, and you're going to get there in a minute or two as you reread it. At 8.30, about five minutes after we went through this, one, a lady down here started guffawing and couldn't control herself and then got embarrassed because everyone else was quiet and she got caught. And I have to tell you, one of the most satisfying moments for me as an individual is Sunday night between 10 p.m. and 
Because all over the city, people are getting ready for Monday morning, some are getting ready for bed, and inevitably, some of you are saying, oh, that's what he meant this morning, and the pennies finally dropped. So, that may be the case tonight, so just enjoy it when it happens. In fact, down here, when I finished the joke, I could see a gentleman just shaking his head. And he's right, of course. So, why am I bothering with all this silliness? What's the point of a knock-knock joke in the middle of a sermon in Matthew 5? The point is this. It's well known. You know how it works. Yet, it took you in a direction you weren't quite sure where it was going, and the ending was a surprise. And that's exactly what happens in this passage as we come to the Beatitudes. You begin to ask yourself, wait a minute, Richard, slow down. What does this passage actually mean? We've heard it. We're familiar with it. We know its structure, but what does it mean? And that's where we're going. And of course, like any Sunday morning, when we come to a passage for the first time, we're always thinking of what is its historical context. In other words, what went immediately before it. Because each time we come to the Scriptures, that's an important question. What has led up to this? And at the end of chapter 4, you have what New Testament scholars call a summary paragraph. In other words, it doesn't take you through all of the detail of everything that happened, but it summarizes what was taking place. And we read these words at the end of chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And it closes with these words, large crowds from Galilee the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, if you're familiar with the geography and the physical layout of ancient Israel, you will have a rough sense of what is taking place there. But if you're not, let me try and put it in perspective. Columbia here in South Carolina is about 90 miles, give or take, from here. You can get there in about an hour and a half, depending on weather and traffic and how fast you're driving and so on. Usually, nearer an hour and three quarters, an hour 45, something like that. But it is a long way if you had to walk it to Columbia. But that's the size of the area that is being described here. So, imagine the towns and villages you go through between here and Columbia, and imagine imagine it that wide as well. And in fact, the passage says, even to the north in Syria, his reputation was growing. It was impacting hundreds and thousands of people, and people were coming in huge numbers to listen to him. And the question is, why? Why did hundreds, if not thousands, turn out to hear the Sermon on the Mount? What was going on? And I would suggest this, that for the months leading up to Matthew chapter 5, not only was the reputation of Jesus spreading, but the impact of His teaching 
was transforming lives. Because up till that point, I suspect that the people who lived in Upper Galilee, the Decapolis, which incidentally was 12 Gentiles or 10 Gentile towns, his reputation was even growing there. Because weekend by weekend by weekend, when Jewish people would go to the synagogue on Saturday morning, I suspect the emphasis was on the Old Testament. Naturally, the New Testament didn't exist. And they would focus on the commandments and say, if your faith is worth anything, you need to be obedient to God. In other words, live out the commandments. But it got a little greater than that. And the teaching would emphasize what to wear and what not to wear. And if you really were a good Jewish boy or girl, mom or dad, grandparent, you would know what to eat and when to eat it, when, what to pray and when to pray it. And the focus changed from the inner relationship with a heavenly father to an outward observance of religious duty. And then Jesus came along talking about not an outward observance of religious duty, not about what to wear, when to wear it, what to pray and when to pray it, what to eat and when to eat it, but rather a relationship with a Father. That's why the Lord's Prayer, which is further on in these chapters, is so revolutionary in its day. Our Father who art in heaven, a loving, gracious relationship, a God who wraps you in His arms of love and care, a God who pulls you up onto His lap when you pray, and intimacy, and immediacy, and answered prayer become a living reality. That's what he was teaching. That's why it was having such an effect. That's why individual lives and families and communities were being affected. And that's why people were coming in their hundreds and thousands. And when he teaches, and incidentally, if you know this passage, you know that no miracles are performed over the next two and a half chapters because the Beatitudes is just the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. There is no emergency turning up. No one comes and says, Jesus, my daughter has just died. Can you please come and heal her? That doesn't happen. It's two and a half chapters of simply the teaching of Jesus. And he begins in what we don't think is a strange manner because we know it so well. But when you slow down long enough, you begin to see it is exactly that. And he begins... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean? Now, if he said, blessed are those who have a relationship with their heavenly Father, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we would get it. If he said, blessed are those whose lives have been transformed, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who engage with Him at such a level that intimacy is a daily reality for them. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We would get all that. But that's not what the text says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so the question is, what does that mean? Well, let me pause for a second, and I promise we'll come to answer the question. 
Because as you begin to immerse yourself in the passage, again, if I can use the jigsaw analogy, you're picking up various pieces, asking, do they fit together? Do they have similar colors and themes and shapes? And is that where they should go? You begin to see a structure to the Beatitudes. And you see it this way. There's a natural rhythm within the Beatitudes. Each character trait is introduced by the same word. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the character trait. And then it goes on. And each beatitude has a character trait followed by a promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. And each promise is introduced by the same word, for. But I think we would both agree that we don't come to this passage of Scripture. It doesn't transform our lives. It doesn't speak into our lives. It doesn't draw us closer in a relationship with a heavenly Father because of its clever structure. It doesn't. It speaks into our lives when we slow down long enough and ask, what on earth does it mean? Now, when you look at it, you think to yourself, blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? If it said rich in spirit, we would get that. But is Jesus suggesting that if someone struggles with depression and goes through a tough experience, that's somehow rewarding and enriching? Is that what he's suggesting? Not so sure. Does it mean that someone with a poor self-image or a low self-esteem or does he mean physically poor, financially poor? Does it mean folks who can't pay their utility bill at the end of the month? Does it mean folks who struggle to pay their rent or their mortgage? Is that some kind of blessed experience of a simple, uncluttered life? Well, those of us who have been there would tell you that was not a blessed experience. We know it's not. So, what does Jesus mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me see if I can illustrate for you. And let me use two hymns. One, an older hymn, arguably the most popular hymn ever written. One, relatively new, certainly the last 10, 12 years. We're familiar with both. And the popular hymn is Amazing Grace, and it begins, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. As you sing that hymn, have you ever paused long enough to say, why does it say that? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We agree. We nod our heads. Absolutely. It's a wonderful sound. It, to be in the receiving end of God's grace is spectacular. It is amazing. And then the ad that saved a wretch like me. Why would John Newton put that word wretch in there? And then the more recent contemporary hymn, we sang it two weeks ago. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure we agree, we delight, we rejoice in it. And then we sing that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. There it's again, wretch. What does that mean? 
What does it mean, spiritually speaking, when we say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are wretched, spiritually speaking? Well, allow me to illustrate, not so much a hymn this time, but from a parable, the most famous parable ever, and it is, of course, the prodigal son. And I'm going to use my imagination here a little, so please forgive me, but I'll stick pretty close to the biblical text. Luke chapter 15, there are three stories, a lost coin, a lost son, and a lost sheep. And it's the lost son we come to, who, at least in my mind, is probably in his early 20s. He's maybe 24, 25, that kind of age. All his day, he has been raised on a farm. But please don't think of a farmer and a couple of cows. Think ranch. Think hundreds, if not thousands, of heads of cattle. It's a significant business. And he comes to his father and he says, Father, one day I will receive my inheritance, and my older brother, he will also receive his inheritance. But Father, I need you to give me my inheritance right now. I need you to give me what is mine while I'm still young enough to enjoy it. And in my mind, I imagine him saying, someday I will be as old as 40, and I will be too old to do anything. Give it to me now. I want to go places. I want to see things. I want to enjoy an experience that neither you nor my older brother has had. I want to live a little. And in fact, the language is so strong in the passage, it says this, with the full force of arrogance and demand, give me my inheritance and give it to me now. And his father does. And for the next few months, he travels. He does, in fact, go places no other member of his family has ever been. He has experiences none of them have had. He sees things. He would say that during that period, he enjoyed life to its full. But it wasn't the end of the story. Because towards the end of the passage, we read this, he traveled to a far country where he indulged himself in, and this is the language wild living. Now, when the Scriptures describe something in an underestimated manner, it is saying, use your imagination. Put your mind to work. Imagine what he was involved in. And that was this young man. Then the parable changes, and it changes in this way that the young man spends all he has and suddenly discovers he has no more friends. Those who used to be his friend, used to hang out with him, are no longer there because he has no longer any money. They can no longer have a good time with him. The wild living is over, and he is homeless, isolated, destitute, with no future and no hope, and guess where he ends up working? Back on a farm. And this time, he's not the boss's son. This time, he's feeding slop to the pigs. 
Can you imagine a good Jewish boy having to feed pigs? He was so hungry, the only food he had was the slops he was giving to the pigs. And the passage changes again, and it tells us this. It tells us that he begins to think. And the language used is this. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he understood what had happened, and he prepared a speech in his mind. And he says, if I go back to my dad, I can say to him, Father, I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. I have hurt you. I have hurt my older brother. I have abandoned you. I wanted nothing to do with you. And Father, I am so sorry. I'm heartbroken. Please forgive me and allow me to begin again. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired servant. Please notice he doesn't go back to his dad and say, Dad, I was taken advantage of. He doesn't say people stole from me. He doesn't say things didn't turn out as I'd hoped. If you can give me an extra couple of thousand shekels, I'll go off and start again. I'll enroll in college. I will pull myself up by my own bootstraps. None of that is said. Why? Because he is poor in spirit. He has discovered for himself the spiritual reality that lies behind his circumstances, that he has ignored his heavenly Father. He has pushed him away. I know best. No one will tell me how to live. I know what's happening. I'll do it, thank you. And it ends up in disaster. And the turning point of the parable is when he is poor in spirit and realizes for the first time, spiritually speaking, he's a wretch. He's got so low there is nowhere else to go. He understands that he cannot change himself. He understands he's no power to change his life or determine his future. And he comes back and he pleads with his father and he says, I've sinned. Why is Jesus describing someone who is poor in spirit as blessed? Because it's a turning point. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. I couldn't see it. I had no appreciation of it. But now I see because he's paying attention to the Spirit of God. He understands the magnitude and the toxic influence of his own sin, and now he can begin again. Now it's a fresh start. Now it's a new beginning. Do you see why it's important to slow down and try to appreciate and take in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who find themselves here because it's a new day. That's what's going on here. Now, you may be saying, Richard, I agree. I've never quite seen it that way, but I agree. That's, I agree. But Richard, what does this say to me? I've been a Christian 25, 30, 35 years. 
I've walked the narrow road. He's been my Savior all that time. I sense His leading and guiding, directing. I know Him. So, what does this passage have to say to me? Well, may I suggest this? May I suggest that in the parable of the prodigal son, there is also an older brother. And I wonder if it could be that the older brother took his faith for granted, prayed regularly, attended worship regularly, lived out his faith regularly. But in the last few years, he'd begun to drift a little. And that's why he goes to the father and says, excuse me, you're having a party for this son who left you? Why on earth would you do that? And the father says what? He once was lost, but now is found. Sound like an old hymn? That's what's going on. And the older son says, why would you do this? And he's missed the point of the father's love. He has taken it for granted. He's been around it all his days. He simply wants to treat his brother with a sense of arrogance and dismissiveness. Now, let me ask this morning, you may not be the older brother. You may never dismiss someone in an arrogant, offhand fashion but I wonder if apathy and indifference has crept into your faith over the last three, four, five months. Your prayer is not where it once was. Your faithfulness, your moral stand has shifted a little, not in any great way, but slowly, surely, you find yourself in a place you never imagined. And blessed are the poor in spirit when you realize there is more to your relationship with Him than you currently are experiencing. There is a deeper and richer and fuller faith there. And that's why this passage is important to you as well. And when you get to that point, guess what? more pieces of the puzzle begin to fall into place. And you see yourself in the passage, and you begin to realize the significance of, Father, refresh me, renew me, work in me, refine and fashion and mold me, that for the rest of this year, I might be yours. That's why it's a blessed experience. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank You that it challenges us and at the same time reassures and comforts us. Enable us, please, as we move into a new week, 
Grant to us your grace and strength to draw closer to you so that we in turn can say we see ourselves in this passage, and it is indeed a blessed experience to feel the magnitude of our own sin, but more importantly, the love of a great Savior. Father, bless us as we seek to follow you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.